Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifdecker, a medieval historian, and today I'll be talking about The Seventh Seal with returning guest and historian, albeit not medievalist, Morgan Morales. Hi, Morgan. Hello. So I know that regular listeners already know who you are, but do you want to still tell people a little bit about yourself and why you wanted to talk about this particular film? Sure. So I think that actually our two historical fields have some similarity in that they're both fields where people see a movie and think they learned history. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So um, I'm actually a historian of the Holocaust, specifically women and gender, and even more specifically than that. Uh, women's reproductive choices and abortion during the Holocaust, specifically for Jewish women. And I am a classic film buff, so, I mean, I I will watch anything from whatever country, from whatever era. And I actually think that The the Seventh Seal is a really interesting exercise in making a medieval movie that really is not about the medieval era. Yes, that was very much a feeling that I had while watching it, is that I'm going to complain about the historical inaccuracies anyway, but in some ways it seems kind of unfair because it deeply doesn't seem like Ingmar Bergman very much cares. No, um, and I think that that's that's pretty true of much of his career. Um, I've seen a handful of his movies. By and large, they're well made, um, and he has a clear sense of what he wants to do and what he wants to accomplish with his films. The Indiana University Cinema actually in the fall of 2018 did a an Ingmar Bergman retrospective and showed a bunch of his movies. And I think actually the seventh mm. seal and Virgin spring were both on them. I should have gone. I missed it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually some, some, some friends and I went to see a couple of them, but yeah, he's, you know, he has a straightforward path of what he wants to do and that's kind of his reputation. Um, and, and making sure he got medieval history, right. Was, I don't think the point of this one at all. No, very much not. The Seventh Seal was uh, released in 1957. The only person in it who I have ever seen in anything is Max von Sydow, who is not playing a Nazi, so he has that going for him in this particular film. It does, even though, you know, he has the look. Right, (laughs) right. I mean, this is black and white, but you can tell just how blonde he is, and if you've ever seen him in color, you know just how blue his eyes are. Right, yeah, that he is... He's a person who you kind of understand why he spent much of his career playing Nazis. And it's not his fault. I'm sure he's a very nice man. And still working. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, he was in The Force Awakens. And I think that's honestly the last thing I remember seeing him in. And I mean, I kind of expected his part to eventually be explained. But spoiler alert for The Rise of Skywalker, he's not in it. Well, he died. Doesn't he die in The Force Awakens? Don't they kill him? I'm trying to remember. I just watched this before I saw The Rise of Skywalker, but they might have killed him, but also they never explained who he was. No, they could have explained who he was, and they do not do that, spoiler alert, in The Rise of Skywalker. But So it makes sense that he's not in it, but he could have been in a flashback. Yeah, so I think, you know, the beginning of, of The Force Awakens is just kind of have this gravitas of Max von Sydow in right. the movie at the very beginning. So, yeah. long story short, Max von Sydow is still working Um, And he's now, I believe, in his 90s. Yeah, so good for him. Mm -hmm. And uh, then this was, of course, directed by Ingmar Bergman, who I am not 100% sure. I had actually seen a film of his before, despite the fact that he is obviously a 
quite famous and important director, but uh, it is the consistent recurring theme of this podcast that I don't actually know anything about film. So would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about Ingmar Bergman as a director? So from what what I do know, which to be fair is not a whole lot because he's not one of the directors that I have followed as much, but Bergman's films really coming through the 50s and um, really through the end of his career because he was directing for decades really deal more with existential questions they do some more kind of experimental things that you would expect to find in Scandinavia but there are also things in them that you would never see in a film made in the United States or even some parts of continental Europe so he has that reputation as not just a director but kind of that um, status as an auteur Mm -hmm. so I've seen I've seen several of his movies I've seen this I've seen The Virgin Spring um, I've seen Fanny and Alexander, which is toward the end of his career. There's Persona. There's Wild Strawberries. The one that I like the most is a movie called Autumn Sonata, which is a contemporary story about a mother and a daughter. And it features the woman who he was romantically involved with and with whom he had a child, Liv Ullmann. Hmm. And the best Bergman to come out of Sweden, Ingrid Bergman. So, yeah. sorry, Ingmar. <laughs> yeah, having watched... This and Virgin Spring, which, by the way, will be the uh, the next episode. Mm-hmm. I feel similarly in terms of how I would assess the two, relatively. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he does some interesting things. I think he's certainly worth watching. Mm-hmm. I think that there is also a a real progression in how you see how he treats women in film. I'm very interested to continue talking about that, since that was an issue that I had with both of these films. Yes, you should have that issue with the, with these particular films. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, so we'll get into that, uh, starting with the first main section, Enumeratio, or the recap. And so just as a kind of very brief orienting recap, this movie is not heavy on the plot, so I can be relatively quick about that. A knight returning from the Crusades to find that the Black Death has overtaken Sweden plays chess with death for his own survival and that of his companions. And that's basically the movie. I mean, so these movies are actually blessedly short. Yes. Yeah, it's only 90 minutes. And so I am very hopeful that we'll therefore have managed to have podcast episodes that are less, that are the length of the movie or shorter. I mean, I I did once suggest to you that we do all five hours of the adaptation of Das Nibelungenlied, which is silent and in German. And as I said, five hours. (laughs) Yeah, we we could one day. (laughs) And hopefully not have a five hour episode resulting from it. This opens from a quote from Revelations and an eerie floating crow, which begins the general vibe of this movie, which I would describe as really fucking dour. Yes, um, and I have something I will share on the Facebook group when it comes time to post this episode. (laughs) So our dour, tormented crusader knight, uh, Max von Sydow manages to meet somebody even more dour than he is, and of course the only person who could possibly be more dour and depressed than he is is actually just Death. Yeah. He meets Death, and Death explains he's been by his side for a long time, and they agree to play what turns out to be a very lengthy game of chess, which will determine his survival. So yeah, so that's basically the kind of beginning as it starts this chess game. We meet a company of actors, and one of them, Joff, it turns out, has visions. And he has this vision, which I swear looking at it, it looked like a woman with a monkey. I guess the monkey was supposed to be a human child. And and Jesus. 
Yes. <laughs> Specifically, it was supposed to be Mary and the child Jesus. So I guess not a monkey. It had been a while since I had actually watched this movie, and I completely forgot what his line was when he mentions that he has this vision. But he actually, so my first thought on seeing, you know, what is supposed to be Mary and Jesus was, yep, just as wide as they were in medieval depictions. That's accurate. Mm-hmm. But uh-huh. then he goes and he tells Mia, his wife, they were brown. <laughs> Yes, which I thought was so interesting. Yes. And surprising in terms of uh, the awareness necessarily of somebody in mid-20th century Sweden of the fact that they are not in fact white. But yeah, so that was interesting. So like the acknowledgement that they were brown, but apparently the only actors available in Sweden to play this were really fucking white. It is Sweden. It is Sweden, yes. So unless they're hiring some outside people... uh, I mean, some Swedes are a little bit more tan than others, but still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when, when they made The Danish Girl five years ago, they actually put makeup on Alicia Vikander to make her more white. Oh, God. Even though she is literally <laughs> the only Scandinavian person in a movie called The Danish Girl. Right. And is also very, very white. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. The other thing, by the way, that he mentions in this vision that totally tracks based on medieval depictions is that the Virgin Mary has blue robes, which is uh, quite common in medieval paintings, basically because blue was expensive. And so that was the color most often used in images of the Virgin Mary, that she's typically wearing blue. So I appreciated that detail. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. This is more accurate than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, there, there is at least right off the bat one accuracy. Yeah. His wife expresses some concern, basically, that everybody hates him because he keeps talking about these visions. And uh, they also discuss their plan to go to the Saints Feast in Elsinore, which I will talk about the choice of Elsinore a little bit later. Okay. We also meet Antonius's squire, Johns, who goes to look at some art in progress being painted in a nearby church. And so he enjoys looking at some skulls and drinks some gin and is having fun with the artist because he's the person in this movie who has fun. He is the one who has fun. I have to say, I love these murals. The murals are very cool. I like them a lot. Yeah. Yeah. When we come to the part of the podcast where we have to make up a movie, I almost considered doing something with the murals. And then I went into a different direction. But the murals are really fantastic. They were very cool. And I very much enjoyed getting to look at those. Mm Mm-hmm. Antonius, which is uh, the the knight's name, meanwhile, goes and gives this depressing existential confession to the priest. The priest is very chill about his uh, basically questioning whether God exists. But then it turns out that that's because the whole time it was death trying to get a leg up on his chess strategy. It figures that death would cheat. Right? It does make sense. But on the other hand, death often seems very concerned about people cheating him. So it's a little unfair. Is death fair? I don't, that's true. Death is arguably inherently unfair. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, a bit of existentialism, existentialism to go with the movie. Right. <laughs> they reflect on their kind of past experiences of the crusade, which they do not see particularly positively. Johns describes it as being so stupid that only an idealist could have thought it up. I actually really love that line. I mean, I have, I have issues with this character, which we'll probably get into in just a few minutes. Oh, yeah. If not seconds, but that assessment of the Crusades, I think it's it's so 20th century. Yes, it's very, yeah, it's exactly, it's very not medieval. It's extremely 20th century, but it's 20th century in a way that I kind of appreciate in that it, I find it increasingly frustrating that I've seen so many movies that have these extreme, this extreme need to 
interpret the Crusades very, very hypocritically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And not to say that that's never a problem with any of the Crusades, but in terms of the overall concept of crusading, it arguably really is an idealistic one in many ways. Yeah. And so I appreciated that acknowledgement in this film. Yeah. If nothing else. They see that there is a woman who's been accused of casting of uh, causing the plague through witchcraft. And uh, then finally, blessed be, Antonius tells Johns to stop singing, which he's been doing periodically. It is not plausible that he has spent like 10 years with this person and has not previously told him to stop singing, but that's fine. He probably has. Also, I mean, who else are they going to blame for causing the plague? Yes, there are other people in real life who might have been accused of causing the plague who most certainly aren't witches, who aren't accused of much of anything in this period. Yeah, yeah. That, that question was rhetorical because you and I are both well aware <laughs> of what we do of who's being accused of these things. Spoiler alert, everybody, it's the Jews, but uh, I'll be talking a little more about that in the next segment. Johns comes across a man who is stealing jewelry from dead people. So first he's actually discovered by this woman, and obviously he immediately tries to rape her because it's a movie about the Middle Ages and you can't have a movie about the Middle Ages without lots and lots of rape. Johns stops him and recalls that he's actually the guy who originally sent them on crusade and says that he'll attack him or disfigure him if he sees him again. Mm -hmm. Then he informs the woman, who will never have a name, that he deserves a reward for basically not raping her. And so she has to be his housekeeper now. With literally the line, I could have raped you, but I've grown tired of that kind of love. It grows dull in the end. Which means that he is a serial rapist. Yep, so this is a serial rapist who we're supposed to implicitly, I guess, give a cookie for not raping this woman which he didn't even do because he thinks rape is wrong. He did because he's bored with it. So I think, I mean, if she has to stay with him, if she had had to stay with him for any extended period of time, he was definitely going to end up raping her. Yeah, I mean, the entire nature of their relationship Mm -hmm. really bothered me in that it's then portrayed in terms of the physical gestures between the two as though they now have a consensual romantic and probably sexual relationship that they're sort of cuddling with each other and I find that very disturbing in that the implication is then that okay so this man basically threatened to rape her and by virtue of the fact that he didn't bullied her into serving him and then now she's in this relationship with him, which is portrayed as consensual, but her it's very clear that her actual ability to consent in this situation is essentially non-existent. I mean, it's non-existent for a couple of reasons. First of all, she literally cannot vocalize it. Right. But also he... That's right, she's mute. Yeah, but he's also put her in a position where she's going to feel compelled to do what he says and to serve him because he is inherently threatening Exactly. In telling her that he will not rape her, that itself is a threat that he could rape her. Yes, and the implication of, uh, well, I don't want to rape you, but you have to come with me and serve as my housekeeper, which is often, in the Middle Ages at least, a quite euphemistic term, very much feels like a, essentially, I will rape you if you don't consent, which obviously makes consent essentially impossible. Yes, 
So essentially her only choices are to have sex with him or to leave and run off. And it's clear essentially that she's uh, probably staying with him as a kind of lesser of two evils in that, I don't know, he'll probably, he'll be kind of raping her constantly, but at least he won't murder her. Right. Probably. Right. And uh, so that's not great. No, no. Jones is a real winner. Yeah. And the fact that John's ultimately is not, I think, a character who is seen negatively in the context of the film. No, he's not. He really kind of um, inhabits this really specific kind of masculinity with this bravado. Yes. Like the kind of guy, and, and this is actually seen, I think, later on in the tavern scene, he's kind of depicted as the guy who you want to go have a beer with. Right, exactly. And so he's supposed to be charming. I think he's supposed to be something of a comic relief character, that he's the only person in this movie who ever says anything that you can sort of mildly enjoy or laugh at, because everybody else in this movie is really fucking dour. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but yeah. he, he's dour. He's definitely cynical. Yeah. But there, there's kind of a lilt to the way he says things. Yeah. And it's, I think, the fact that everybody else in the movie still cares about something. Right. Jones is, no longer does. Yeah. Jones is at this cynical point where he just doesn't care about anything anymore. Yes. And that ends up making him cynical, but in this way that's supposed to be kind of charming and funny. Yeah. So as the kids say today, he has no fucks to give. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of broadly the portrayal of gender and female characters, it does feel like his casual and less casual misogyny which is on display throughout the film Mm -hmm. is not necessarily something that you're supposed to be opposed to right or that's supposed to be at least a deal breaker in terms of whether or not you like this character it feels really like 1950s american right (laughs) not swedish i mean but honestly i don't know that much about swedish culture in the 1950s but it's a very yeah as you know, as we've learned with our Ing- Ingmar Bergman movies, who knows what the hell's going on in Sweden? Yeah, I I certainly don't know what's going on in Sweden, but uh, based on what I've seen thus far, it's not great. I mean, I also saw uh, Midsummer a few months ago, so I'm real, real unsure about what's going on in Sweden. <laughs> I actually don't know what's going on in Sweden in the Middle Ages, really, either, except insofar as I did some research for this, and I certainly have no idea what's going on in Sweden in the 50s, so... Apparently a lot of existentialism. Apparently. Yeah. They, oh yeah, so they uh, they see a procession of monks carrying relics and flagellants. Many of the people are very moved, and Antonius is very dour about it. We also then return to the tavern, where Jons is having a great time. And by the way, since you actually seem to know how to pronounce Swedish to some extent, I very much do not. If there are things I am pronouncing incorrectly, please do let me know. I'm a romance language person. Okay, yeah, so I will preface this, because I was actually thinking about this. Between the two of us and our our research languages, none of them are Swedish. However, two of mine are Germanic. So you're much closer than I am. Yeah, so I'm kind of, I mean, I can't totally pretend that I can I can pronounce Swedish, but there are certain letters that I know that should be pronounced. So J's are more like a, a Y, like they are in German. Okay. Um, and I can pronounce all of the umlauts. Okay. So. So the actor who is named Joff? Yes. Joff. Okay. Yeah. 
So Yuff is in a tavern and is saved by Jans um, because I guess so there's this smith who is attacking him because some other actor ran off with his wife. Yes. So As all I actors are bad. And I, I'm really, I'm so amused by this part because I'm wondering if this is how Ingmar Bergman feels about actors. <laughs> That's a good question. It's interesting. It does seem like he has a lot of actors that he like, worked with repeatedly. Yeah, so Bergman actually has like this coterie of actors that would keep coming back and doing Ingmar Bergman movies. So, I mean, if you look up like the Wikipedia pages for a lot of these people, a lot of the first two sentences say something like, so-and-so is well-known for their work with Ingmar Bergman. They appeared in da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So, yeah, he has this cast of characters that he keeps bringing in. It's like it's a stock company for a theater um, and he did do theater work. So, but yeah, I mean, Max von Sydow is one of them. We'll see another one when we talk about Virgin Spring. Like I said earlier, he did uh, Adam Sonata with Liv Ullmann, who did a lot of films with him and also bore his child or one of them. Um, and she's in a bunch of his movies. So, um, and there's another one. I can't remember who she plays in The Seventh Seal, but Baby Anderson is in Seventh Seal and she's also in his film persona. Yeah. Yeah. And when that happens, my sense is sometimes it's a sign that they have good relationships with actors. And sometimes it's a sign that they kind of don't and that they have people that they kind of stay attached to because those are the people who they happen to work well with. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people they kind of might not work well with. Yeah. Yeah. So from what I understand, the people who did work with Ingmar Bergman really enjoyed the performance aspect of it. Mm-hmm. They, they felt that it really allowed them to do quite a lot and quite a few different things as actors and really stretch certain muscles that they might not get to if they worked with somebody else. So the sense that I get from the partnerships that Ingmar Bergman had with other actors is that it was um, a really beneficial working environment. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And they are certainly interesting roles, many of them. So. Yeah, yeah. And it does actually, I think, kind of, when you see them like this, it does really feel like a theater piece in a way that you have people kind of coming in and out Yeah, for these almost small yeah. parts that aren't quite cameos, but are kind of meant to, right. to be really quick, to be memorable, still to contribute something to the plot, what there is of it, and then to exit stage left. Yeah, that's a good point. This actually, I think, would adapt very well as a theater piece in that way, which a lot of films are more complicated in that regard. So that's that's interesting. I should look it up and see if it has been. It wouldn't surprise me if it had been. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. It should be a musical. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be great. I, I always just find it very funny that the choice, I find some of the choices about what gets made into musicals completely bizarre. So for example, I completely adore Les Mis. Mm-hmm. I don't understand the thought process of reading the book Les Mis and saying this should be a musical. So I recently saw Cats. <laughs> I also saw Cats. <laughs> um, I just don't understand any choices that anyone has ever made in relation to cats, so... No, and that's so bizarre, but how do you go from reading these T.S. Eliot poems and thinking, I'm going to make a musical about a feline death cult? Right. (laughs) It sort of deeply doesn't make any sense. 
And then there's also a lot of other choices that they made when they made the movie, which then managed to make it make even less sense. Oh, yeah. Which is special. It's very rare that you take something that doesn't really have a plot and then you impose a plot on it and that actually makes it far worse. Yeah, it's so but actually Cats is directed by the same person who directed the most recent film adaptation of Les Mis, the musical. Right. Which are both films about too, so And also he directed the Danish girl. <laughs> oh, that's right, I forgot that. I like some things about the Les Mis adaptation. I think that the choice to cast Russell Crowe as Javert is maybe one of the worst choices anyone has ever made. But it's it's bad. It's really bad. Yeah. yeah. So I'm yeah. But the, this would actually be probably a really entertaining musical. I'm trying to figure out who could do the music to it. Yeah. Honestly, the first person it. that comes to mind is Morrissey. Hmm. I could see that. <laughs> kind of this Dower Smiths vibe. Um, yeah. But also, Morrissey is a giant racist asshole. Yeah, which I'm not sure we want to lean into, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. By the way, I saw Cats here in Bloomington, and there was exactly one other person in the theater, and it was this you know, elderly white lady who came up to me afterwards to say that she doesn't understand why the critics are panning it and thought it was very good, and also that she will see anything Idris Elba is in. I mean, I will also see anything that Idris Elba is in. Yep, me too. <laughs> but that doesn't mean this was good. I think my friend and I were being so annoying to the people in front of us. Because right from the beginning, we were just, we were not being quiet in how we felt about this movie. And we went to one of those fancy theaters that have buttons for ordering food. Mm. And she looked at the button because it's lit up in between the seats. And she asks, is that a panic button? <laughs> experience i i went to see cats alone at like a not especially nice theater in bloomington so i know exactly which one you went to yep (laughs) i mean there are two options yep exactly yeah (sighs) yeah cats yep so uh meanwhile uh to get back to the film here yes ingmar bergman does not like actors perhaps ingmar bergman does not like actors and this also is actually on display in Antonius's conversation with Mia, who he runs into, that's Yoff's wife, mm-hmm. who they're talking about her child. And she indicates that Yoff, I guess, wants him to be an actor, and she's not so sure. She also then says, maybe he'll become a knight. And Antonius sort of looks at her and goes, that's not much fun either, which was pretty funny and also probably true. Probably true, but also, I mean, what are the chances of that kind of upward mobility? Not very good. It's pretty yeah. unlikely that this kid would ever become a knight unless they, you know, unless like, like there are weird circumstances in which potentially he could say if like Antonius had adopted him essentially. Right. Yeah. That was, um, that was my guess. Yeah. But short of something like that, he's probably not becoming a knight. Yeah. And I think to some extent my get my reading of it was that she kind of meant it as a joke. And then he's like being very dour and serious in response. He has one mood. He does. Yeah. He does. And this is his most cheerful, by the way, in the entire movie. It's the most him. hopeful he looks. Yeah. Like, he's enjoying this wonderful evening in Sweden, which, this is how you know it's summertime in this movie, because evening in Sweden is bright and sunny. Right. Yeah. 
Right. So uh, he is having a great time. They are chatting about, uh, you know, their futures and the world, and they share some strawberries and milk. Yep. And uh, it's it's all very nice. And uh, then he invites them. He tells them that they shouldn't go to Elsinore because of the plague and that instead they should come with him to his house. And he reminisces about his wife and tells us that apparently back in the day he wrote songs to her eyes, to her nose, to her beautiful little ears, which sounds awful. And I will say I will 100% take Dower Antonius over Antonius singing about his wife's ears. It's a little, it's, it's, it's like how you might talk about a puppy or a baby. Yeah, which, not shocked. No, no. <laughs> Death returns and the chess match slowly continues. Meanwhile, Yonza has uh, been chatting with this smith uh, who, after saving, after keeping him from killing Yuff, and cheers him up with a bunch of misogyny, including the delightful line, it's hell with women and hell without them, so it's best to kill them while it's still fun. Uh-huh. This is our comic relief character. Yep. Ha ha ha. Yes, I was rolling <laughs> with laughter. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yep. They return. Yoff is very happy to see Jans because he saved his life. The smith does then eventually find the real actor culprit and his wife, Lisa, to which when I found out that was her name, immediately just started in my notes uncontrollably, uh, including a lot of jokes from the room about how she is tearing him apart. (laughs) (laughs) So they trade insults for a while. And then eventually Lisa decides that she's going to return to her shit husband and the actor who is actually the head of the theater company fakes his own death by suicide to get out of this whole situation. But then the joke's on him because death shows up and makes him die for real. (laughs) Which is actually, which is actually the only funny part in the movie. That was pretty funny, <laughs> but especially because he's like, he's all like, but I have my performance. And then Death goes, goes, yep, canceled on account of death. Yeah. And it's such, <laughs> it, it's also such a lame death. Mm-hmm. Right. He climbs up in a tree and then death cuts the trunk of the tree. It's almost cartoonish. So right. No, it's like, it's very ridiculous. And I kind of wonder if it's gratuitously insulting actors. Yep. <laughs> I think it might be. Otherwise, I'm not sure what the point of it is. I guess you can't cheat death. I don't, I don't know. It's Or Ingmar Bergman doesn't like actors. Right. Or just the, like, capriciousness and randomness of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And death is around the corner at every moment. Yeah. So cheery. Antonius and Dion's are now traveling with the remnants of the theater company, so Yof, Mia, and their child. As well as, of course, the random woman that Jones has bullied into sleeping with him. And then completely inexplicably, the smith who I assume has a life and a job and his wife Lisa are also going with them. Mm-hmm. Did you understand why? I think that it's to avoid the plague. Okay. I think that I'll that's... That. I think that everyone going to Antonius Block's castle is going specifically to avoid the plague. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't turn out well for them, but... It's certainly an idea. Well, you know, best laid plans. Yeah. Yeah. They run across the group who is escorting the accused witch to her execution, and Antonius chats with said accused witch for a bit. 
and uh, then death appears because he was behind it all along because death is behind everything. Yep. And Antonius is very grumpy about it. Well, naturally. Fair. Yeah, yeah. He also gives the witch a, a, a accused witch a drug so she will not feel pain, which is very nice. And of course, we're calling her the accused witch because she, like some other women in this movie, does not have a name. No. <laughs> yeah. You know, hey, there are three women with names in this movie. Yes, there are. There are three. And spoiler, this movie does in fact pass the If Decker test. I thought of that. By a hair. Wait, does his wife get a name? I don't remember if Antonius Block's wife has a name. Yes, her name is Corinne, because that's one of the two names he's heard of. Yes, <laughs> so four. There are four <laughs> named right. women. Yeah. Wait, who's the fourth? It's Mia, Lisa, and Corinne. Who's the... No, you're right, it's three. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But three is not bad. I'll give Bergman that much. Yeah, it's not It's not horrible. Yeah. So. Many, many films I've covered have fewer than three named women. I saw a movie yesterday that took place in the modern era, and it only had one named woman in it. Right. Yep. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, it was a Guy Ritchie movie. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, Guy Ritchie is in my special Hall of Fame for movies that hate women. Yep. (sighs) Yeah. They run across the thief from before who tried to rape that woman, and I guess he has a plague now. So he yells for a while and uh, talks about his fear of death. And another thing that I'm really annoyed by is that specifically the person who keeps trying to help him is the woman who he almost raped. Why are you trying to help this person? Right, but it's that that kind of archetype of the, the pure woman who is always compassionate, even to people who don't deserve it, even to people who have wronged them. I'm not fond of it. Oh no, it's, it's dumb as <laughs> shit. It's, it's terrible. But it does exist. Yeah. 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 So I didn't like that particular choice. And Dion's just keeps talking about how nothing matters, which is clearly not just about the dying guy, but about how everyone at this movie is deeply, deeply depressed. Yeah. And also probably Mar Berkman is deeply, deeply depressed. Yeah. I think that has a lot to do with post-World War II existentialism and cynicism. I am more familiar with it on the actual continent rather than in Scandinavia. I also would be curious to find out a little bit more of it based on Sweden's status as a neutral nation during the Second World War. Hmm. Though, of course, no nation was entirely neutral. Hi, Ophie. So she also has some thoughts about Sweden's neutrality in the Second World War. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, you do. What do you think about Swedish neutrality? Huh? Good girl. So they, you know, they're they're certainly not facing the kind of armed conflict that you would find, um, and the destruction that you would find, say in Germany, say even mm-hmm. in London with the Blitz. But obviously, because every country was touched by that war, right? Sweden, it's a little trickier. They did um, accept a decent amount of Jewish refugees, especially coming mm-hmm. from Denmark. But mm-hmm. then again, there's also some business interests that they were still okay with in terms of do, mm-hmm. doing business with German German outfits. Um, uh-huh. And Sweden had its own active Nazi party. Lovely. Yeah. Just lovely. So, but yeah. So oh, they I, are very blonde. Yeah, yeah. They, they were. So, I mean, they, they fit. Aesthetically, they fit a profile. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's all gone full circle because now the neo-Nazis really love the Vikings. Yeah. 
And I guess the I guess the like old school Nazis also really love the Vikings. So yeah, there's the whole Nordic component, kind of an embrace of this this Norse. I don't really want to say BS, but I also kind of want to say BS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean they they would have been natural, acceptable allies according to ideology. Right. So right. Antonius continues his chess game, meanwhile, and Yof, because he sees things, sees the chess game and is not pleased at the fact that their buddy is playing chess with death and realizes that this is not going to go well. And so he manages to talk his wife into leaving, and so they, with their child, leave. Antonius, I'm pretty sure, notices them leaving and actually is deliberately trying to make sure death doesn't see. Yeah, yeah. He's very nice. He is. He's letting them escape. Yeah, that's that's the most heartwarming part of this movie. Mm-hmm. Is that Antonius, uh, you know, seems to have really decided he cares for this pe- these people and wants to help them escape. Yeah, he, and he, so he distracts death to to let the acting troop family go their merry way. Yeah, mm-hmm. he does not do that favor for Jans, which you know, I don't mind. You know what? If I had to live for ten years with that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck it, you have to die with me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and death, I think, at this point explicitly says that once Antonius, you know, loses the chess game, he does plan on killing all of his friends as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, as you do. They arrive at Antonius's home, and a nice, fittingly dour woman comes out, who we soon find is Antonius's wife, Corinne. And we learn that all of the other people have fled the plague, but she has remained to sit alone, dourly, in this castle. They have a very cheerful dinner where they all read aloud passages from the Book of Revelations, as you do. (laughs) (laughs) Just because, you know, if it it didn't need to get even more dour. Yep. Let's let's break bread and talk about the end of days. (laughs) The end of days, at least it's better than medieval Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> is the implication, apparently. Apparently. Then death arrives. Nameless woman is goddamn delighted. And she'd been mute, but she says something here, right? Yeah. Like she says something like, it's finally over. Yeah. Which, you know, poor thing, I don't blame her. I don't either. I thought, you know, you you know what this is about, you you're not as silent as pa- and passive as you've been portrayed to be. Yeah. And uh, then that also made me wonder, is it some kind of miracle that she's now speaking? Or was her mutinous an act? And I don't know which it's supposed to be. I don't either. Yeah. So, interesting question. And we end with seeing Mia, Yof, and their child, who have successfully escaped. Yof sees the rest of the group dancing in a line with death. And describes this vision to Mia, who cracks the fuck up because she thinks he's full of shit. (laughs) And they can continue with their happy life. Yep. So that's nice. Yep. I mean, if if a whole castle of people's going to die, at least they're going to their death dancing. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at least one of them, honestly, seems pretty pleased about the whole thing. It might genuinely be an improvement than having to live a life continuously raped by Yums. I think actually, in general, I'd rather be dead than have to interact with Yons at all. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> really, they've all dodged a bullet there. 
Except now they're stuck with him, still, in death. They are stuck with him, for eternity. But maybe he'll shut the fuck up now. Maybe. (laughs) That's what we can all hope for. (laughs) With that, cheery end. I do like that. I do like that final image of them all dancing, kind of that silhouette. Yes, it is a great final image. And uh, one of the things that I will say, actually, so that actually is a good lead into the next segment, Vera et Falso, where we talk about what they got right and what they got wrong, is that that image of people dancing with death is really a medieval one. Okay. And it is cool the way that he clearly drew on that imagery. On the other hand, it is a little bit later. The implication is that this is supposed to be right at the start of the plague, so the mid-14th century, and that's really a 15th century image. Right. But, you know, I'll, I'll give him that one. I mean, they are playing fast and loose with the time periods here, because, I mean, there's no indication oh, yes. of which crusade is this. Yes. How many crusades were Sweden involved in? That's my question. one of my questions. Um, and then, in reference to plague coming, I mean... Th- I know when that happened, but they're not really adhering to any kind of historical time period. Right. So he explicitly says, and this is one of the other problems in terms of the timeline, he explicitly says that he was on crusade in the Holy Land. Mm -hmm. The last crusade to the Holy Land would have ended in 1272, which means that really would have been a very long trip for him to not get back to Sweden until the arrival of the Black Death, specifically in Sweden, which was 1350. Yep. And Sweden was, I don't think Sweden was especially heavily involved in the Holy Land Crusades, although I'm not unwilling to accept the possibility of there being individual Swedish crusaders. But the crusades that I would say there probably were actually a heavier Swedish involvement in were the later crusades, which would actually have put him potentially in time to be coming back from a crusading activity during the Black Death would have been the crusades that the Teutonic Knights were involved in against basically the kind of northeastern pagans. And so it would have made sense for him to be, say, on crusade in Lithuania. Oh, that makes so much more sense, especially geographically. Exactly. So if they'd had him coming back from crusade in Lithuania and arriving to the Black Death, that actually would have made sense, but that's quite explicitly not what is happening. No, they do explicitly state in the Holy Land... Um, which is yeah. a really super long trip, very expensive. Yes. So, And it would have taken him a while to get back, just not quite 80 years. Yeah. <laughs> and looking so well-preserved. Yes. No wonder death is after him. Yeah. He found the secret of life. You really need to hurry this up. <laughs> the other big thing is that and this is a quite frequent problem in medieval films, is that witch persecution as a phenomenon is introduced far too early. It's really not a significant phenomenon until at least the 15th, moving into really the 16th century. And certainly witches were not in particular blamed for the plague. And so in Sweden, in, so in general, as we already touched on, Jews were quite frequently blamed for the Black Death. There does not seem to have been much of a Jewish population in Sweden, however. Right. So, and and I kind of mentioned this before we started doing this, they would certainly be aware of Jews. Mm-hmm. While they might not have a population of Jews in Sweden, they would certainly be aware of them. In particular, if they're crusaders. 
Yeah, so they certainly know that Jews exist. Yeah. It seems, however, in Sweden, as far as I could tell doing a bit of research, that they seem to have gone one of the other pretty common routes in terms of finding explanations for the Black Death, which is actually just blaming it on essentially our own sins as a society, that we are a sinful people and God is therefore punishing us. Right, that's the flagellation procession. Right, so... yeah. The flagellation procession is a little bit off in itself, but since while the flagellate movement was common in many parts of Europe, Sweden was not in fact one of them. But the general concept of blaming um, their own sins definitely is one that makes sense. And a fun statistic that I found is that in 1350, which is the year that the Black Death seems to have arrived in Sweden, having spread from Norway, the donations that year to religious institutions spiked it so basically spiked dramatically so there were four times as many donations to religious institutions made in the year 1350 as the yearly average for the previous decade oh wow okay so trying to buy their way out of plague exactly (laughs) the like maybe we can buy our way in general out of plague maybe at least like we can buy my way out of plague or make sure that if i do die of plague i at least can get to heaven faster and so there seems to be a very much a kind of awareness of their own sinfulness. The blaming themselves is probably better than blaming women in general and Jews in general. Yeah, so... It yeah, seems the least harmful. Exactly. Like, if all they're going to do is basically make donations to a church, that's not so bad. No, I mean, especially considering the incidence of pogroms from crusaders right. going to the Holy Land. Right, exactly. Yeah. And that that very much happened in the wake of the Black Death, of course, is that in Germany and Barcelona, my own major area, there are, you know, there are attacks on Jewish quarters and large number of Jews are killed in the context of being either directly blamed for causing the plague or being, or basically with the idea being that one of the ways in which we've sinned is that we've clearly been far too nice to the Jews and so we need to stop that because God is angry that we're too nice to the Jews. Well, it's also the era of, of Jews immigrating to what is now Poland. Right. And that's one of the reasons that they decided maybe it's time to get out of Dodge, uh, yeah. specifically Germany. Right. So, they, yeah, which, you know, of course, from which the Ashkenazi population springs. So. Right. Yeah. Right. One of the things I do want to note that I think they did get right, if only... That I assume actually, well, you know, somebody I must have actually known this, is that it's relatively uncommon in medieval films that you see hints of uh, the kind of importance and use of relics. Mm -hmm. And so I appreciated that in the procession, which has the flagellants, there are also people carrying what are clearly supposed to be reliquary caskets. Yeah, I noticed that, which I, I was actually, that actually made me think of how infrequently I see those things in films. Right, and if you go to any museum and look at a medieval collection, you see a huge volume of that type of object, which is A, because they were valuable objects, but also because they made a lot of them. Yeah, there's a whole room of them in the chapel, well, in like an anteroom to the chapel at the um, residence in Munich, the old royal Mm -hmm. um, residence there, um, which they claim to have the head of John the Baptist. Everyone claimed to have the head of John the Baptist. Yeah, um, and I say, <laughs> yes, and I do say claim because, I mean, I looked at this thing and I'm, I'm looking and I'm thinking, is it though? I don't remember the exact numbers offhand, but there were something like 30 churches in the Middle Ages that claimed to have the head of John the Baptist. They also, they also have on display what they claim is um, his mother Elizabeth's head, skull. Hmm. 
And I will say, at least some of them, they're probably not the heads of the people they're supposed to be, but they probably are someone's head. <laughs> you know, it, it did look like a skull. So Yeah, no, it almost certainly is somebody's head. It might have been the head of some German man who died in the year 900 or, or say whenever exactly the relic ended up showing up. But it probably is somebody's head. His name might have even been Johan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was actually a big joke. They're like, oh, this is Johan's head. <laughs> and there's actually a, uh, a great story from Cologne that at some point they found uh, this mass grave, which they then interpreted as and built a chapel around this as being the remains of uh, a woman named St. Ursula and her companions who were allegedly 11,000 virgins. And so then there's this whole reliquary chapel in which they literally have like decorations with bones that they found in this mass grave. But a number of scholars have looked at some of these bones and have determined at least some of the skeletons and other bones that they can clearly determine belong to men. And some of them they can also clearly determine belonged to large dogs. <laughs> Uh-huh. I mean, I don't so, want. So. I, I don't want to dump on Catholics, but there's some, for as much crazy shit as going on in Sweden <laughs> within Catholicism. There's also some really crazy shit going on. Medieval Catholicism is deeply fascinating. It is. It is. Yeah. So I, I told my nephew and I were talking once, and he's asking me a question about the Crusades. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, you know, I was explaining a little bit to him because obviously I'm not an expert. I do 20th century history and I dabble in, you know, late 19th century for the historical context for that. But I'm telling him a little bit about this. And my kind of parting comment was, yeah, it really wasn't Christianity's finest moment. Right. And then my nephew, he's 13 now. I think he might have been eight or nine at the time we had this conversation. Mm-hmm. He gets kind of pensive and he goes, I'm glad I'm Catholic and not Christian. <laughs> And I thought, you know, he's a kid. We're going to have this conversation later. But this is a conversation we should probably have. It's great because I usually see Protestants making that mistake. Right? (laughs) That they don't think Catholics are Christians. But in his defense, he was eight or nine years old. Right. Yeah. So I I get it. I've had college students who don't know that Catholics are Christians. Yikes. Yeah. So maybe I'll get him a book about the Crusades for his next birthday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> something, something that flat out mentions the popes. Yep, learn, learn something about his faith. Yeah, yeah. Not that the Protestants are better, but... No, they burned some people too. Yeah. So. There were a couple other things that I did, in fact, appreciate that, whether on purpose or accidentally, they got right. In particular, the, uh, the use of chess and the motif of playing death with chess, that playing chess with death. That is a medieval motif, and uh, chess in particular was a popular game among elites, at least in the medieval world, having been brought over via the Islamic world into Europe in about the 13th century. And so, you know, good job on that, on the chess. Yeah, that's one thing I mean. So I did actually know that that chess has a, a much longer history than before whatever time period this movie's trying to take place in. Yeah, and uh, from... Uh, 
even just from the European side, there's a there's actually an entire manual uh, produced or commissioned by Alfonso X of Castile mm-hmm. that is basically about chess and that has a bunch of painting of um, illuminations of people playing chess, which is really interesting, especially because a lot of them are clearly interfaith interactions. So it's a Muslim and Christian playing chess together. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So chess, chess was a thing. Yep. Okay. So, good job there. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, I don't know if they did this deliberately exactly, if, you know, if Bergman did this deliberately exactly, but there is a persistent myth about the medieval world that people didn't actually love or care about their children because they, this is kind of going back to uh, Philippe Arias as the person who is particularly responsible for this claim, that essentially people didn't love their children because a lot of them died young so why get attacked? mortality rates. Yeah. So you basically just like as a, I guess, prophylactic against being sad, just didn't love your children. I don't think that's how that works. No, no, it isn't. I don't have kids, but I don't think that's how that works. No, it seems to not be. And there is a great book by a scholar named Barbara Hanawalt writing on medieval England, which is a little bit morbid because her main sources are, in fact, coronary roles. But the point of the book is ultimately that medieval people did indeed love and care about their children. It's a lot of, and we know this because we got to hear how the mother reacted when her child drowned in the salt pans one day, which we have in in these coronary records that she's looking at. So there's a certain amount of morbidity there. But there is certainly a sense that people are increasingly acknowledging and that scholars of medieval childhood are emphasizing that people did in fact care about their children so I appreciate the emphasis on Yof and Mia, you know, playing with and loving their child. In they film. do. They clearly love their son. Um, and that's actually yeah. that I wasn't really expecting that. But there is a lot of attentiveness toward their son. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a real investment because, it, I mean, it, it's her conversation with Antonius about her son's future is not the first time that, that she has discussed his future. Right, it's made clear that she and Yov have talked about this before and that she knows what his opinion is and that she doesn't necessarily share it. So this is clearly, these are clearly conversations that they're having about their child. Yeah, and I, I actually yeah, so do. I, yeah, I really like that. Yeah, I do. I like that aspect of the movie as well. Yeah. So yeah, so some things that they did well. Mm-hmm. A couple other quick things I want to mention that they did not do so well at. Art historically, the murals are fantastic. They, like this image of the dance with death, are, however, stylistically look a lot more 15th century than 14th to me. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, I, they're very nice and they are medieval, but, you know, our timelines are a little bit fuzzy here. They are, yeah. I, it, it's our also, timeline, I think yeah. it's that idea that the medieval era is one thing throughout an entire handful of centuries. It's always one thing. Right. And that's not that uncommon of a problem. The idea of this kind of monolithic Middle Ages, and if something is characteristic of the Middle Ages, then it's fair game for this movie that takes place at some indetermined time in the Middle Ages. And and also in terms of, of, of geographic places. Right. So hence the inclusion of the flagellants, which are a medieval phenomenon. They're a phenomenon from approximately this time period, but not one that is actually found in Sweden. Right. The inclusion of Elsinore is also one that demonstrates something of a confusion of timelines. 
Elsinore is, of course, best known as being a place in Denmark from Hamlet. In terms of the exact geographic location, you know, Denmark and Sweden, they're at various times under the same ruler. Elsinore is actually very close to the, the Swedish border. And so it's not out of the realm of possibility that people who are an acting company who mostly are in Sweden would decide to go to Elsinore for a festival. And it's, it's a quick trip, too. So I've actually been to Kronborg, yeah. which is the castle that is supposedly Hamlet's castle. Right. Um, and actually, from the window at Kronborg, you can see, which is in Denmark, right outside of Copenhagen, you can see Malmö, Sweden. So people there can see Sweden from their house. That is exactly the joke that I made when I was there, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, it would be, I mean, you'd have they'd have to take a boat, but it's also geographically it's close enough to Sweden. I mean, obviously, you know, a, a really southern part of Sweden. And then, you know, it, I think it's northern eastern part of Denmark, but also Denmark is so tiny that whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So location-wise, it doesn't not make sense that they go to Elsinore, but time-wise, it doesn't make a ton of sense since Elsinore seems to have existed, but really been basically a kind of nothing small town until about the 1420s, which that's when the castle was built and is also when the same ruler, uh, Eric VII, I believe, both built the castle and also seems to have really emphasized building up Elsinore or uh, what is it called in Helsingor, uh, really emphasized building it up as a, a kind of economic center as well it's unlikely that anybody would have really gone out of their way to go to Elsinore in 1350. And if it's just building up, I don't think there would also be the population that would, you know, want an acting troop visiting. Exactly. And acting troops certainly maybe, I think, stopped sometimes in smaller towns en route to other places, uh, you know, essentially basically because they need a place to stay for the night and would potentially even, I think, do something along the lines of give a performance in exchange for a free, you know, free room and board. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it wouldn't have been a destination in 1350. Right. Again, we're, we're fuzzy on our timelines here. Yeah. One of the things that I think is also interesting that the movie does in terms of this historical period is that it's very existential mm -hmm. and very much has this presentation of a society that's at a moment of crisis. Yeah. And it's an interesting choice that I wanted to talk about a little bit in the next segment, the Historia at Veritas segment, because there is popularly often considered to be a crisis of the 14th century, to use the term that historians still sometimes use, the idea that basically things started bad and kept getting worse in the 14th century, that it's in a century that faced a number of famines, that, that of course had the plague. Yeah. The plague was not just a one-time event uh, in 1348-1350. It kept coming back. And uh, so it's often seen as this uh, period of crisis that, that might have led to some amount of existential dread, even if it wouldn't have been expressed in quite the same way as it is in this particular film. Mm -hmm. It is worth noting, however, that while I think the idea of the 14th century as a moment of crisis wouldn't have been something that really was being questioned in the 1950s, it's something that scholars are trying to think about now in a somewhat more complicated way and trying to, I think, move away from, to some extent, uh, from this narrative of uh, 
basically things just kept getting worse from the beginning of the 14th century onward, this kind of narrative of decline. And given the move away from that narrative of decline and the emphasis on the fact that for a lot of people, there were a lot of things that were, in fact, arguably kind of good about the 14th century. Right. That, I mean, if you didn't die, you actually potentially were doing quite well because all of your relatives were dead and you inherited a lot of money if you were of a certain status. Yeah. There's a bright side. Yes, there's that kind of benefit there. Yeah. Um, My particular fun fact is that the kind of best moment for Jewish women being able to participate publicly in economic life in Catalonia comes in the wake of the Black Death, that the rate at which uh, Jewish women are making loans spikes from about 2% of all Jewish loans to 20% between 1348 and 1350. Yeah. Good for them. And it also is if you're a person who is a of kind of laboring status, wages rose because, you know, there are fewer people. And so they're, you know, your services are more in demand. More in demand and fewer people to actually do them. So, Right. Yeah. And while the kind of Malthusian narrative has also, I would say, the kind of like, oh, this sort of had to happen because of overpopulation – that narrative has also been very much questioned. It is also certainly the case that, again, if you survived, you did potentially get to experience there being in some ways fewer drains on resources than there previously had been and kind of more to go around for the available population. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's also very much a moment in some ways of cultural efflorescence we have a lot of great art being produced in the 14th century i just got to see the arena chapel in padua which is uh giotto who is a 14th century italian artist i can't say much about sweden but uh no but a lot of so a lot of the art at um which museum is it one of the pinacotech museums in munich and i am mentioning munich because i spent five weeks there past this past (laughs) summer but one of them they're they're art section actually begins in the 14th century. Hmm, right. And with this flourishing and, and, you know, really beautiful works. And actually, I think I mentioned to you when I was there, you know, the depictions of medieval woman, women with boobs in the wrong places. Uh-huh. <laughs> and artists who <laughs> yes. have clearly never seen a baby. <laughs> yep, the artistic efflorescence did not encompass knowing where boobs are located. Uh-huh. Or what children look like. Yep, yep. And maybe not the most... Maybe not the best way to honor the baby Jesus by painting him looking like a 60-year-old angry man. That's semi-deliberate, I will say, in that, like, he's, it's, like, Jesus is special, so he's supposed to have been, like, basically, like, born fully formed. Okay, okay. According to some kind of theological treatments. But, I mean, the art from that era, I mean, there's a lot going on there. There's some really gorgeous depictions happening. There's really great uses of color. You kind of see you know, changes in perspective right? with painting. So it, it's not stayed. It's not, not, not um, this stagnant era of darkness. There's a lot going on to celebrate, actually, in terms of artwork. Yeah, absolutely. It's also a really important period for literature. You know, a number of the figures that are the kind of best-known figures in medieval literature, so Chaucer, for example, are 14th century as well. Yeah. So it is very much this period that is uh, one of cultural efflorescence, even if it's also one that is uh, marked by some amount of uh, crisis and challenge. Mm -hmm. 
I think it is questionable whether people would have had quite the same amount of existential dread in the real 14th century as they had in this movie. But I also think that to some extent it is a period that based on some of the historiography at least made sense as a period to set a film where people are so overcome with this existential dread. Right. And I mean, they certainly wouldn't have spoken about it within the same language. That's part of the anachronism. But right, I think right. that that's also part of the appeal for Bergman of find of, of really applying these 20th century concepts and these concepts that are in that particular moment of the 1950s of these questions of what the hell is life? What the hell is death? What the hell are we doing here? Right. And putting them in an era where he is assuming that there is this kind of existential dread, even if they're not still, if even if they're not using the exact same terms. Right. And as I said, I think that is a really interesting choice. And in general, I'm not opposed to the idea of making those kinds of medieval modern connections. I think a lot of the films that I've most enjoyed have been ones where they use some amount of modernizing language, for example. Um, So A Knight's Tale, A Little Hours, uh, that they do the opposite in some ways, that they kind of make use of modernizing language to emphasize the joyousness and humor of the medieval world yeah very much make that more accessible by using a you know familiar modern language mm-hmm. and so Bergman's really doing the opposite uh although interestingly actually depicting a similar time period yeah yeah to both of those films uh they're actually all 14th century films mm-hmm. but um I think that that concept is one that is uh I think in some ways, one of the better ways to make a medieval movie, even if it's not accurate exactly to the time period. Yeah, I agree. And I I think the two examples that you mentioned are really strong, are really strong examples of that. Um, I mean, A Knight's Tale and Little Hours are both hugely enjoyable movies. Yeah. And also they're very aware of what they're trying to do. Yeah. And they... They're anachronistic, but in a very deliberate way for the most part. And uh, this movie, to some extent, is... I mean, certainly the kind of existential language, that is very much deliberately anachronistic. The timeline mishmash, I think he just doesn't care. Oh, I agree. I agree. I think he just... Oh, medieval era, you know. They had that. They had that. They had that. Mix it all together. Yep. Yep. Just a fun, fun medieval mashup. Fun little Swedish meatball of a movie. (laughs) so with that we can move to our next segment where we reflect on how we might make our own little swedish meatballs of movies yep and (laughs) the segment fabula nostra where we talk about what version we might do of this film if Somebody gave us money to make this movie right now. Yep. What did you have in mind for this? Okay. So it is not set in the medieval era, but it does involve a bunch of medieval graduate students. Okay. So I am taking the concept of playing a game with death. Mm -hmm. And as kind of a nod to the Bergman original, it's going to start out with some, you know, a couple of grad students wandering around Ikea because their kitchenware is affordable for us. Uh huh. <laughs> and in the shadows, amongst all of the uh, ready to assemble furniture, is death. <laughs> but he looks like Orin from Parks and Recreation. 
So it is, in fact, Oren from Parks and Recreation. And I was going to look up his name, the actor's name, but I thought, but I don't particularly want the actor. I want Oren. (laughs) Okay. So what these grad students are doing is they're at Ikea because they need flatware because they're having people over that night. And somehow Mm -hmm. death is coming with them because they meet him at Ikea. Mm-hmm. And they play an extended game of Cards Against Humanity with death. <laughs> I would love to see this movie. So they're all medievalists in various disciplines. So we're going to have a couple of historians, maybe an art historian, um, some religious studies people, some people in the English department, all working on various aspects, various um, geographic settings and um you know some might be working in you know the 8th century some might be in the late 13th century i didn't actually come up with their research projects though i did actually consider it <laughs> but okay so it's a group of of seven of them cuz it's seventh seal um uh-huh. plus death who they all just met today mm-hmm. and they're going I to play yeah. they're going to play to 20 so they have to get 20 cards Mm-hmm. because that's going to take a while, so it gives Death kind of time. But by the end of it, Death realizes that these graduate students are so cynical and stressed out based on the combinations that they choose to go with these cards that he figures that their life is <laughs> fucked up enough, and then he just leaves. <laughs> oh, man, that reminds me far too much of graduate school. <laughs> so for Death, I have... <laughs> For death, I have Oren. Mm-hmm. That's his name now. Mm-hmm. For one of the grad students, I have Tessa Thompson. Mm-hmm. I have Tom Holland, who is mm-hmm. currently Spider-Man, and they're, they're, they're yeah. not all people from Marvel movies, because <laughs> I did realize that when I was working through it. Another one of them is um, Kate McKinnon, mm-hmm. just in part because I would really like to see Kate McKinnon in graduate school. Right. Because we saw me at Kate McKinnon, like, postgraduate school in um, Ghostbusters. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so wait, wait. Was that my three or four players? That That's was three. Three. That was three. Yeah. Okay. And then I had... Oh, God. What was that kid's name? Oh, so there's an actress named Holly Taylor who was on The Americans with um, Carrie Russell and oh. Matthew Reese. It's a story yeah. about Sylvia, the Soviet Union. Um, so I was going to cast her because I think she's very good and, frankly, very underrated. Who is she? Her name's Holly Taylor. No, I mean, who is she in The Americans? Oh, she's their daughter, Paige. Oh, oh, right. She'd be of an age where she could play a grad student now. She'd be a really young grad student. She'd be the grad student who would walk in to teach a section, and the students would think that she's one of them and not the actual TA. Right, yeah. Yeah, which does happen. Okay, that's four. And then I would have um, Diego Luna. That's who I had. Mm, Yeah. So foreign... But also older, because, you know, some mm-hmm. of us go when we're older. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I had um, Letitia Wright, who, yes, I mm-hmm. went back to Marvel, but she's excellent. She was great as Shuri yeah, in I Black Panther. Yeah. And then I had Yelitia Parasito, who was in Roma. Oh, okay. With the Alfonso Cuaron movie. So uh-huh. I was trying to go really diverse and yeah. also partly foreign. Yeah. Because grad students are, frankly, they can be very diverse. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the point is that this is this really random. Plus, when you play with people who are not American, mm-hmm. it usually makes it funnier because you have to explain some of the jokes. Right. Yeah. So those are my seven players, plus 
death slash Orin, um, and then death just gives up on all of them. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds upsettingly like my real experience life and social circle in graduate school, and I am delighted with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yep, cards against humanity with death. I love it. Yep. So I went the route of keeping it in the Middle Ages, and however, decided I wanted to gender swap it, uh, essentially in part in response to all the casual misogyny and the fact that I think it would actually be interesting to subtly deal with the question of how the realities of casual misogyny in the Middle Ages mm-hmm. might have affected in particular a woman's experience of being in this time and place. So I was thinking of doing something along those lines I think it'd be interesting to now have uh, Max von Sydow playing death uh, in his old age. And uh, so now returning to the film, but now playing death. Yep. Hi, Carmen, for the very loud meow that happened in the middle of that. And um, then my um, idea for our person who would be then playing this chess game with death and interacting with death is Florence Pugh, because she has a lot of experience now with eerie shit in Sweden. Did you see Midsummer? I did. I loved Midsummer. I loved it. My only complaint is that Ari Aster, the writer-director, has clearly never met a graduate student and has no idea how graduate school works. That's very, very true, yes. Because they're like, oh, I'm just going to like change my project and I'm doing this. It's like, what? Like, no, no. You can't get accepted to a PhD program unless you actually have a solid idea to begin with. Right. That doesn't mean it might not change, but you have to know what you're going to do going in or at least be really good at faking it. Right, exactly. The extent to which people are just like fucking around and don't actually seem to have any goals or awareness of what they're doing is... Yeah, so there's there's Christian who just decides, I'm going to write my thesis on this Swedish death cult thing. Well, and... So does the other character, too. I mean, it's not like like he came there. Um, I don't remember the name of the character, but the one who plays Cheaty in The Good Place. Yeah, I was just going to say William Jackson Harper from The Good Place. But also, he's intellectually dishonest because they tell him, don't go look at that book. And then he does it anyway. Right. And so, uh, like, his dissertation is going to be like a disaster. Like, all of them, actually. like Or both of them. Their dissertations are going to be completely wrecked because, like, I mean, I don't have to deal with this stuff because I study dead people, but they have to, you have to fill out so many forms if you study not dead people that they are going to be like, have to like overtly lie on or like their projects cannot get ERB approval. Like that's what it's called, right? ERB? Yeah, it's ERB. So I've had to look into that just in case I have to talk to any Holocaust survivors or their children at some point. And you right. cannot interview a living person unless you fill out this form and you do it right. with some kind of, not some kind, but you have to do it with absolute integrity. So the way right. they go about this is frankly kind of infuriating. But like you, I actually loved the movie. <laughs> Yeah, so I really love the movie. I really loved Florence Pugh. Um, Florence Pugh has been... So the past few years that she's actually been doing movies, she's been great. The first thing I saw her in was this movie called Lady Macbeth, which was described as Wuthering Mm -hmm. Heights, but if Alfred Hitchcock did it. Ha. And that, that was actually a really accurate description of the movie, and she is fantastic. I'm actually really pleased she got nominated for an Oscar this year. I am too, and I thought I thought she was great in Little Women, even though I still hate Amy. No, but I think that this adaptation did a lot better with Amy than any of the other previous ones. I think so too. It made her more relatable, even if I still didn't like her. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah, she at least seemed understandable. Yeah, Florence Pugh is great, and I think that she has, so earlier we were talking about kind of the gravitas of Max von Sydow, and though we were talking mm-hmm. about it in terms of Star Wars, but he's got this kind of gravitas and this presence, and you do actually see it in this earlier movie as Antonius Block, yeah. and I think that she actually has the charisma to pull that off to actually go not just face-to-face with death, but face-to-face with death played by Max von Sydow. Exactly. Yeah, that that was one of the things that most impressed me about Midsummer is that she is that she really has that gravitas, but as well has she simultaneously has gravitas, but also the way she plays deep, intense emotions feels so both relatable and cathartic and that you can connect with her in that way, but it doesn't diminish her gravitas at all. And I think because of that, she'd be a really fantastic fit for the role. Yeah. So I would watch it. Yeah, I would definitely watch your movie. I, I am very excited to uh, to tell all of my friends from grad school about this. <laughs> I will say this is inspired by the fact that about two weeks ago I played Cards Against Humanity with my colleagues from grad school. <laughs> I definitely did that in grad school. So. Oh yeah. Yep. <laughs> So we now come to the time where we rate this movie on a scale from one to five, one being the worst, based on whatever criteria we want. I personally went back and forth on this a lot. It clearly is a great film. Yeah. I'm very bothered by the portrayal of women, and I am also very frustrated by... The historical mishmashness. It's a not uncommon problem, but it's one that really irritates me. That I don't understand to some extent why you can't do a kind of basic, let me figure out the fact that I can't have somebody on the way home from the Crusades in the Holy Land arriving in time for the Black Death. That is just a pet peeve of mine that I've seen more than once. Also, I mean... It just drives me insane. It is an easy problem to avoid. Right. Because historians are not hard to find. We're not, no. And if you paid us, honestly, probably not that much money, we would consult. Yeah. I'm just going to, like, go ahead and put that out there. People making medieval movies, you wouldn't have to pay me that much money in the grand scheme of what your budget is to get me to consult on your movie and tell you when something makes no sense. Oh, Julia Regal and I have talked about this. (laughs) About how someday someone should pay us to consult on a Holocaust movie. Yes, they should. Because, I mean, help is needed. Yes. And so that just bothers me so much. I think ultimately... You know, this is a medieval history podcast with a feminist lens, not a film podcast. I'm going for a 2.5 out of 5. Okay. So I like Ingmar Bergman as a director. I think that mm-hmm. for certain, there are certainly certain problems. There are certainly really misogynistic problems. And it's not misogynism done as, let me show you how bad it is to tell you how bad it is. Right. Which is, I mean, something that that Mad Men actually did successfully when it was talking about era-appropriate misogyny. It was always through the lens that this is happening, but it's very bad. It's something that Game of Thrones, frankly, did horribly Yes, in saying, here's how it was back then. I mean, never mind the fact that when you're dealing with fantasy, there's no such thing as a back then. 
And not to mention the fact, well, I, I have a lot of thoughts that are going to come up probably in the Virgin Spring episode about the use of rape in medieval media, but. Uh... Yeah. So, but it is, you know, I, I think that it's, it's not done in the way that it could have been done to say that, yes, this misogyny is bad. It's done for laughs. Um, and right. I mean, frankly, they're, they're cheap laughs. Yeah. It is a very well-made movie. I think it's, it's absolutely beautifully okay, like, filmed. The cinematography in the movie is yeah. really great. So I think I would probably give it a three, mm-hmm. um, just based on the fact that it is very well made. Um, I think that Bergman has a very clear vision of what he wants to do. Everything else be damned. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> ultimately, the, 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 you know, the misogynistic issues do kind of, not kind of, but they do take away the enjoyment of watching a movie. I mean, you can still get enjoyment out yeah. of watching an existential exercise. There is still something... In, frankly amusing about watching a chess game between death and a knight. Oh, yeah. I mean, Bill and Ted did it, too. Right. <laughs> so actually, so the, the, the DVD that is put out of Seventh Seals from the Criterion um, collection, which is basically the cream of the crop of DVD releases, they put together mm-hmm. these huge compendiums of information about the films. And they now have their own streaming service where you can watch movies. And on Fridays, they do double features, where people, mm-hmm. you know, they'll tell you, here are the movies you should pair together, have a fun Friday night. And yeah. one week, it was like when they very first started, their double feature was The Seventh Seal with Bill and Ted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's great. And whoever their programmer is, that just, because with a movie like Seventh Seal, because Bergman has this pedigree, you can probably get some pretentious assholes telling you that you should not pair it with a Keanu Reeves movie. Right. But I love that they did. Yeah. So, I mean, and it, it's, it, it can be an enjoyable concept to watch death and a mortal man playing chess. And it is yeah. entertaining in those moments, but ultimately that misogyny does take away from the enjoyment. Um, and yeah. it's to a distracting degree. Yes, it was something that really took me out of the film in a lot of ways, because there would be scenes that were really good and really compelling, and then we'd go and see Jan say something just utterly terrible. Right. And it'd be like, oh, oh, right, this is the movie that I'm watching. Yeah. So, yeah, and because of that, it unfortunately really hasn't held up as well as it could have if it hadn't had those scenes. No, and actually, I think there is a certain demographic for whom it really does hold up. Yes. Yes, I'm sure there is. Yeah. No further comment. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on to talk about The Seventh Seal. Mm Mm-hmm. If you have enjoyed this podcast, however, we are findable on the internet. Please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review Media Evil on Apple Podcasts, and I will read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join the Facebook group, and you can find Morgan in the Facebook group, I believe. Yes, I do post there. Yes. Yes. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah F. Decker. And if you have any questions, please send me an email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Pesten, den svarta döden, hemsökte Europa vid mitten av 1300-talet. <laughs>